On today's episode, you're going to hear singer-songwriter Tim Cheesebrow talk about his life with music. I'm your host, Sylvia Morn, and you're listening to the Music Secrets Exposed podcast. Today, I have a very interesting guy on the podcast. His name is Tim Cheesebrow. I'm hoping I'm getting the pronunciation correctly. And he is a singer songwriter, and he also runs a very interesting nonprofit, which he will tell you about himself. Tim, welcome to the podcast. Great to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me, Sylvia. Now, I haven't really spoken to many singer-songwriters. I've read about a host of singer-songwriters, but I haven't really spoken to one. So this is going to be a revealing podcast about what does it take to be a singer-songwriter? But first, what's your own personal story regarding music? How did you get into music? Um, I think my earliest experiences getting into music were... Um, Going out with friends to coffee houses, you know, in middle school age, and we'd listen to all their their folk music. They were a folk music band. We kind of followed around, um, and just getting familiar with that kind of music, and you know, it kind of just struck a little struck a chord with me, and 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 I decided to pick up an instrument and start playing. Um, I'm actually a horn player was my first um, instrument was euphonium um, and then I picked up the guitar and you know had a band in college and stuff I, I didn't really get serious about songwriting until I um, kind of took a little sabbatical for myself and um, uh, joined AmeriCorps which is a, a volunteer corps um, and did some teaching through that, um, but I had a lot of quiet time because it was uh, it was we were housed at a monastery near New Orleans, and there's a lot of time to think. So I had a lot of time to write, and um, I really connected with uh, kind of the act of songwriting and um, met some really cool songwriters. One of them named uh, Pierce Pettis, just a lovely guy. He came. And um, after a show, you know, we talked for a couple hours about songwriting and I, I, I left that meeting going, yeah, that, that's what I want to be. Um, so I kind of came out of that experience with a lot of fire and just said, I'm, I'm going to do it, whether it's a good idea or not. <laughs> started, amazing. Started making albums, you know? Yeah. So for someone who wants to, or, has this dream of writing songs. What do you think are the three core components you need to be a really good songwriter? Um, I think awareness is one. And, um, you know, there's lots of ways to cultivate awareness. Like we, we it's kind of a buzzword now. And, and, you know, lots of the people in the mindfulness circles will give you no end of, techniques for increasing your awareness. I find that um, for songwriting, the best way to, uh, to 
kind of increase your awareness is just to carry a notebook around with you at all times. And you can just get one of those little three and a half inch, um, they're like five bucks on Amazon. Um, they even come with a little pen. And you know, just keep one in your pocket because um, interesting stuff happens all the time. And most of the time we look at it and say, oh, that's, yeah, that's interesting. Go on with our day. And then it's forgotten about. Um, but if you take a few seconds to write it down, you'll discover that your life just is this wellspring of songwriting ideas. You can flip back through them. Um, and it also has this additional characteristic where um, I think a lot of people might find it um, or I guess a more common way to find it would be like uh, the example of having a camera. I don't know if you're a nature person or not, but there's a difference between taking a hike with a camera and taking a hike without a camera. Yes. If you take a hike without a camera, you're just kind of, you're, you're trudging along, you are soaking it in. But if you have a camera around your neck, the experience changes entirely from looking at the bigger picture all of a sudden you're noticing all the tiny little details about what you're seeing on the way because that piece of equipment's allowing you to capture those details. That's where your focus goes. Similarly, if you have a notebook, you're always hunting for stories. Mm -hmm. So um, would you say that songwriting is the art of storytelling through music? Oh yeah. Completely. Yeah. That's, especially if you're in the folk tradition, that's your job. And what would you say your tradition is? Would you say it's folk tradition? Is it blues? What style? What genre? Um, I'd probably fall under folk rock. But, you know, I also find that genres aren't terribly helpful because most musicians don't like to be in a box. We, like, we want to do folk and blues and a little jazz and a little rock and a little whatever. We just like playing music. You're talking my language because <laughs> the boxes, you know, when you think of labeling, you think of boxes, it kind of blocks creativity right there. Mm -hmm. Because the art of being creative means you have to be open minded. Really? Um, another question. How did you actually get into this whole idea of performance? Now, I'm, I'm sensing through your story that a big part of your life is performance and you like doing gigs and all of that. So how did that whole story evolve concerning performance? Um, you know, it started out just as a, a thing that was interesting and fun to do, um, play, you know, play in front of your friends. And again, it was kind of the coffee house scene at the time. Um, and that was just the thing to do. Um, but then in college, we got a little more serious with it. We started you know, getting on a circuit and playing bars and stuff. And we realized, hey, you know, this is not a bad way to make money. And um, and then I guess once, once I realized I could actually, as a solo or duo, be even more flexible in where, I'm, where I can play, um, then I found that, like, I was able to I guess, piece together a 
career out of, uh, <laughs> out of that. Now, if you were to meet someone who really is fixated on this idea of performance and they just really want to go for it and make this thing happen, what is your advice from someone that has been there, is there? What would you say to someone trying to start out in this whole idea of performance? Um, I would actually start with uh, a piece of advice that was given to me by B.B. Um, King when I had a chance to meet him. And I'll expound on that. His, because um, I asked him the same question. We had a chance to do a, we got a backstage passes and I'm like, if I'm going to talk to the King, like I'm going to figure out I'm going to figure out like how his world ticks, you know? Um, and I say, I say, yeah, what's, what's the most important thing? And he said, yeah, you know, the most important thing honestly is uh, to be kind and, um, and to know that everything you do off stage is usually way more important than everything you do on stage. Um, and I would expound that to say, yeah, you should be kind, but, you should also be prepared. You should also be on time and professional, courteous, um, you know, treat it like a business, like you are trying to secure lifelong clients. And, and sometimes, yeah, they become friends and, and uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's great fun. You meet a lot of awesome people. Um, but if you keep in the forefront of your mind that you're providing a service you are lucky to be able to do it. And, um, you know, whoever you're dealing with, try and, try and be as kind as possible to those people because over time, that reputation is going to, it's going to work for you. And people are going to call you back versus other people who showed up and were acting like jerks and you know, cussing and throwing equipment around because there are those people out there. But the easiest thing to do to make make this a career is just to be nice to everybody. I agree. And I also think the performer, if he's in that mindset, he would be very spiritually aware of himself and he would be aware that he's giving possibly more at times than he's receiving and he has to have those boundaries set in to protect himself as well. And what I have seen, I'll just tell a quick story here. Before this interview, I was, we were just chatting about, you know, traditional Irish music and it has its roots, of course, where I am in Ireland and there's different viewpoints and all of that. But there was this lady said to me when I was getting to this whole scene of traditional Irish music, trying to understand what it's all about coming from a classical background. She said, look, you have to go to this event. It's in a local town. It's such a night. I'll take you. We'll have a great night out. So I went to this community hall, full hall, everyone so excited, a night of music. And it was like the real stuff, as they thought. So this group of uh, musicians sat in a semicircle on the stage and they were all dressed in black. So that was the first thing. The second thing was they had all their instruments neatly placed around them. So you had the accordion, the concertina, the fiddle, you know, the whole lot, the bar on the lot. And they started playing and their expressions were like as if they were at a funeral. And I walked out and I said, if this is what traditional music is like, 
I'll never enter this world until I was in County Kerry one summer's evening and I saw Sharon Shannon, a well-known accordionist or concertina player. And she just had this magnetic charisma is all I can say. She was laughing and communicating with her people on stage with her and then looking out at the audience and everybody dancing around in the street and having fun. And then I got this new viewpoint. Oh, this is what I thought it was supposed to be like. So that event is just, okay, it's there, but it's not really inspiring people. And I often think that for performances to be really done well, there has to be a connection between what's happening on stage and to the audience. And on another note, if we look at Andre Rio, who has revolutionized the Johann Strauss Orchestra, like he's renowned in his world of music with Johann Strauss waltzes, he's brought them to, it's like he's broken down this elitist orchestral classical world and made it accessible to those that may find it too fuddy-duddy. So would you agree to that, that there's this relationship, connection, spiritual charisma thing going on between the performer and the audience that makes it really amazing? Yeah, 100%. And actually, I, I know the, I think I know the, Orchestra you may be talking about. I um went over in Vienna one one time. I was uh I caught a like a Viennese Philharmonic um concert. And the most amazing thing to me was A, how many young people were in the audience, and B that they treated Strauss like a rock star because the conductor said, like, all right. You want one more? And they were like, yeah. And then they started chanting Strauss like he was, you know, uh, and they were like, all right, let's play some Strauss. So then they did. And everybody got up and danced. Oh, there's some wonderful videos. I mean, COVID in a sense, honestly, it's been so hard for artists, but COVID has really shut him down, I'd imagine. I haven't seen any of his newer videos come out, but like some of his older concerts in Vienna, um, in in Paris, um, but particularly Vienna, he's done concerts there and they're amazing. They're stunning. They're amazing. And you see old people, children, and they're so inspired and in the moment. And this connection is just, he's got charisma to begin with because he's like, he's a great businessman anyway, but he's got a huge charisma. And then they interact and they have fun on stage and they completely break down this elitist affair, which has taken place around classical music. And I think in, in traditional Irish music, I think, what I'm realizing is how misunderstood it is that a lot of people are misunderstanding the melody lines are to be dug deep into rather than superficially listened to. Whereas maybe in the pop music world, we just listen and we hop up and we do our thing. But there are some styles of music where you have to dig a little deeper to get the message. And there's other styles of music where it's just there in front of you on a golden platter. Mm-hmm. But what value do you think has spirituality in music? Um, well, I think whether whether we know it or not, um, I think that's why a lot of musicians are attracted to the profession in the first place. Is it because um, it, it, it playing music? is a spiritual experience. And it's, it's one that, you know, it's so great to have it with a group of your best friends. It's great to have it with a group of strangers. It's like, um, 
the psychological process is called cognitive flow, where um, you're able to kind of uh, let your waking mind take a back seat. And then you're, you get into this mode where everything feels automatic and like, it's just kind of happening. Like autopilot almost. Yeah. You're almost like observing your fingers um, doing a thing going, wow, I'm amazing. (laughs) Um, But that feeling is so unique to music. And, um, and I think that's, you know, once we've had that experience, we all want to recreate it. And it, it is, it is undeniably spiritual in nature. I think Greg Braden, and I've mentioned this before in the podcast, Greg Braden, some people pronounce his name, but he's a scientist. I'm not sure if you're aware of him, but he talks about this connection between the brain and the heart connection, which they're discovering through Heart Math Institute. And I think what you're saying there is, is part of that. Yeah, absolutely. It's completely part of that. So what you're saying is you've got to hone your craft very much and it becomes automatic, just an extension of your person of your physical body in a sense. And then through that, then you can just be fully natural and in the space or in the zone as they sometimes call it. Yeah. And people respond to that because um, when they see somebody who is just so immersed in what they're doing and is just pouring their heart out, they either connect with that on a really deep human level or they connect with it in a, like a, um, kind of like a gosh, I wish I could be that free or that connected or like, you know, I want that for myself. Um, so to back up a little bit for a student listening to this podcast, wanting to get to that level, which I suppose in some cases, if you were to box it in, you would say ultra advanced level. How does a student go on the path to getting to that you know, state, state, I suppose, that ultimate state. Sure. Um, uh, I think this is going to, this is going to sound very non-musician-y of me, but uh, I think the first thing that, that um, students should do is throw away your sheet music um, because at some point it's just a hindrance. It's a crutch, mm-hmm. right? What you want to do is develop your ear so that you can hear the changes in the chords and you know kind of where things are going to go next. You can anticipate melodies Um, when that becomes automatic. And of course, practice your scales, practice your chords, learn a little bit of theory enough so that the way you think about music is not so rote. It's not, here's my melody line, I'm going to play it. But you think about all of the pieces of music in relativistic terms that way, as the song shifts, you can shift with it. And when you're kind of playing intuitively, you know, um, uh, like jamming is a great, you know, just start with a chord progression and just see where it goes. Um, that is a great way to get into a state of flow, even if you're not the most proficient player. Um, it's the kind of prescriptive music that we're so used to seeing, like the conservatory style music schools. Um, I think they do us a, a bit of a disservice because they they lock everybody into this 
logical interpretation of music, which is beautiful and has its place. But if you want to have a personal spiritual experience, you can't be fixated on the page. You have to you have to be listening to what's happening off the page and reacting from a different place within yourself. Well, then I suppose you're leading into this whole idea of training students how to improvise and be creative with their instrument. Because mm -hmm. a lot of examining that I deal with personally, having taught music for 20 years, is very much rule bound and based in square boxes, really. And I can see developments now that they're trying to break out of that by introducing jazz into syllabuses, but I don't think it's enough that there needs to be more freedom allowed. And um, it's, it's an interesting conversation to have, really. Very interesting. Yeah, and there's even, you know, the, the, the Center for Irish Music here in Minnesota has a very interesting um, uh, instructional program for instrumental uh, students wherein um, they don't they don't allow the use of music at all. It's even from the get-go, you learn all the tunes by ear, and the main part of instruction is sitting in a circle with a bunch of instrumentalists and you're all teaching each other. So it's, it's so like- So I suppose what you're saying there is that's like the, a format for jamming. Yeah. In a sense, so kind of structured jamming in, in a kind of a guided way. Yeah, so kids learn through play, which is the way kids learn anyways. And you say, here's this little melodic idea. Let's all learn it by ear. Okay, let's see what you do with it. And it's an amazing program. Um, now, I don't know if that is strictly part, I know if that's part of the Irish instrumental tradition or whether that's just something they decided to do, but I, it's an awesome way to teach. I think that's amazing because it's again another letdown, forgive me, letdown of classical uh, groups in the sense that for some instruments, there's very little opportunity for that jamming to happen. And I've said in this podcast before that I think jamming should be encouraged way more. This idea of improvising should be encouraged and shown way more but i still value this idea of learning music theory because i think if you want to learn something and you're not able to go into a, a music shop and understand what you're reading you're inclined to lose out a little so i think a little of that anyway is needed you know for reading sake and understanding stuff but in general i think jamming yeah huge well I, you know i look at the instructional strategy that a lot of places take and and i think the problem is that they start with theory Yes. So because as adults, we say, well, in order to do this thing well, you must have this background knowledge and that. In background. other words, they're pre-framing with theory, if you will. Right. And and to us, it makes total sense. Mm -hmm. But to a kid, they're going, why do I, want I have to play? To... <laughs> yeah. Why don't you learn the boring stuff? And the truth is, you don't need to learn theory to start jamming. No, you, you don't. You can just pick up any instrument and start playing. That's why it's called playing and not working music. So in my opinion, I think there's two things missing. There's improvisation and there's jamming. And you're completely right. It's like all the psychologists, the child psychologists have said, children learn through play and music is playing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it doesn't have to be a complicated instrument to begin with, just to get their hands tactilely on the instruments, you know, touching the instruments. Yeah, and 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 for that, I uh, I love the use of 
whistles. Yes. Uh, yeah. They're used all the way around Ireland here. In every primary school, you'll see tin whistles in school bags. Yeah. And they're 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 great fun and they're compact and they're cheap and kid they're small enough for kids to get their little fingers in them. Um in along those lines, we have a, a slightly different tradition here um, in that we have got these Native American style flutes, which are a little bit different being two chambered. Yeah, and, and the neat thing about them is that um, with that double chamber, that kind of helps take away the risk of overblowing that you get with like a straight tin whistle. And that's, you know, that's the sound that parents hate is the, <laughs> when the fiddle breaks and it's like, wee, so <laughs> yeah. oh, my ear. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So yeah. the Native American style flutes, um, they're a lot harder to overblow. And because, and like the, the air going into the chamber is all, it's always um, coming from the same angle. So the tone is very even. And I find that that helps, um, students get into music making because the whole technique of how do I play this instrument goes out the window. It's just, there's five holes, put your fingers on. Yeah. See what happens. Yeah. Oh, couldn't agree with you more, Tim. Couldn't agree more. Then they just start playing and they're like, listen to the song I made. It's so, so cool. (laughs) And it's so excited. Yeah. It's like, it's coming then into the world of technology, press the button, job done. You know, it's getting across that bridge as well, isn't it? When it happens so fast. Now, you told me before the interview that you are running a nonprofit and have been running a nonprofit for 11 years. Good for you. So can you tell us more about that? Yeah, um, it's called Discover Music, and um, it's a music education nonprofit. Our main objective is to kind of use music as a way to connect kids with um, maybe the, the deeper parts of themselves and uh, hopefully to learn to use music, particularly songwriting, as a tool for their mental wellness. Um, and uh, that's been, that program has been a, a good success. Um, and we're also, we're, we're launching a new program that's kind of specific to Minnesota. Um, if your listeners aren't familiar with where that is, it's kind of in the middle of the United States, just below Canada. Um, and we take all uh, stories that we find in our historical societies and old newspaper clippings and things like that. And we write songs about kind of the unsung heroes of, of history and, um, and just people with really interesting stories that deserve to be told, but um, because they're just average people, they usually don't get told. And then we use that as a tool to teach history in classrooms Um, because some of the standards, the educational standards that classroom elementary teachers are really having a hard time hitting um, are history because in order to teach history, you gotta study history and most people don't. Um, Since so many music teachers are being let go, a lot of elementary music is now falling on the classroom teacher who's saying, gosh, that used to be my prep period. And now I need to learn how to teach music. I don't, I don't play music. So like running into that barrier. 
And then particularly in Minnesota, we've got some laws around um, uh, the necessity to teach the, the Native American side of history. Um, but there's really no resources for how to do that. And so teachers are kind of at a loss for all of these things. And that's where it's totally cool to be able to come in. Um, like an example that you'll see, if you go to the website, you'll see a video of um, my friend Fred and I, where we were doing a class on the voyageurs. So we dressed up like them and we're like, all right, we're gonna teach you a little French today. So we taught him some French and we did some like rowing songs. We had them pretend that they were rowing at their desks. And then, um, and then we said, all right, now we're gonna teach you a little bit of Anishinaabe, which is the dominant um, Native American group in the Northern part of the state and learn all of the original names for the major waterways. And then we had them, we taught them a little bit about orienteering, gave them some compasses and then said, all right, it's almost lunchtime. What you gotta do, you know, you gotta take these compasses, you gotta go out and map the hallways of your school as though they were rivers. And you're, you know, you're gonna be scouts and um, you have to send your map back to guide the rest of the voyagers down to the lunchroom. And that's how we got them down to lunch. And you know, we, we do all these things and we sing these silly songs, we kind of work it all in. And um, what I found, and this is kind of the cool thing that COVID taught us, because it kind of gave us that, that year buffer. Um, we go back and some of those kids still know how to sing those little rowing songs. And, and they still remember how to use a compass. They still remember some of the French and Native American words. And, you know, for a third grader to keep anything in their brain for two years. It's amazing. Yeah. So it works. Proof of concept. Um, so anyways, those are kind of the two main things that our nonprofit does. And have you had an opportunity of actually uh, working with the Native Americans and bringing them in through your work into the schools for them to speak for themselves? Has that ever happened? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, we did a, did a project um, last year where we found a, a, a flute maker in Georgia. We got every kid in the class their own flute, and then we contracted him to do um, like a four or five part series on um, the history of the flute, how to play it and how to use it as part of your spiritual practice. So have you found that that type of education may have lowered barriers between, forgive me for classifying normal Americans and Native Americans, like has it broken down barriers of understanding between the two groups? Because I mean, there's been a very checkered history there. I know. I know it's bad, um, but I, you know, I don't, I haven't found, we haven't done enough of that work yet to notice um, whether or not it's breaking down barriers, but what I think it is going to do and, and, and the hope of some of the school administrators I've talked to about continuing this kind of programming is um, to just by telling the stories from different cultures, um, including the immigrant cultures as they all came over, because they all have very interesting stories as well. 
um, you're kind of giving license for them to be cool and saying, this is cool. This is interesting. This is worth checking out. And um, maybe some kid will spark something. They'll go check out a book, start doing their own research. Uh, that that's kind of our hope. And, and we would, you know, we would love to make those different types of cultural things cool and interesting. And, um, but it, it has been said, you know, when you listen to child psychologists that like you can train a child any way you like. So you have the power of influencing their perspective on what's around them. And music then just has this innate way of getting in like the back door into the brain, if you will, and causing this incredible effect, which I'm sure you are seeing in your own work, to be fair. Yeah, all the time. Um and that's that's one of the reasons why we targeted it at uh, middle school age kids, because they've got a lot going on up there uh, at that age. And sometimes the back door is the only door. <laughs> um, I was speaking to a music therapy therapist uh, recently here on the podcast by the name of Kara Smith, and we were just speaking about the healing sounds of the Native Americans that innately you know I have had the story in my own life where I've used a lot of their music to help me through tough times it's just I found it very fulfilling to listen to and very um, deep it's just something I would have needed at one point in my life and that amazingly that there is no research being done into their music and actually what's in it in depth that creates this incredible healing in people whether it be mental emotional whatever and I mean, how many musicians have I heard going to Native American communities to find their why again, to find themselves again? But they have a, they have so much to give. I think so too. And and you know, there is a um, there is a cultural barrier there in that uh, so much of their music is tied directly to their spirituality. And also that a lot of their spiritual practices are closed to those who aren't in their communities. Um, so that kind of makes research impossible unless you are part of one of those communities. And um, so that's why we don't have a whole lot. But we also, I mean, you could do quite a bit with kind of comparative ethnomusicology um, because in kind of all cultures, um, that have developed their own styles of music, every single one of them has a tradition that's based on the minor pentatonic scale and is based on, you know, kind of the um, simple instruments, but not simple in a bad way, just... Very rudimentary instruments. Flutes, yeah. <laughs> drums, simple string instruments like... Lyre, um, mandolin or whatever. Yeah, and those iterations of those types of instruments pop up everywhere simultaneously using the same scales. You know, they may have different feels to them, but um, it's interesting to me that uh, all cultures basically came up with the same idea at the same time. Yes, and yes. And like I did research recently on... Um, or sorry, I did a series of episodes, I should say, on this idea of world music. And it was just a very light 
crest of the wave look at world music. But what you could clearly see is the what you're talking about, the Peruvian flute in, in Peru, how similar that is to the Native American flute. They're one of the same in a sense. And um, I thought that was an amazing thing just to see that, because, of course, back in the day, they wouldn't have had the ability to travel like we have now. And that these creations, if you will, of, of music were so similar. Well, Tim, your, your work is really interesting. Just before we finish the podcast, what stories have you seen within kids that you've inspired? Have you any stories of some kids that you've inspired through your work? Because it sounds so inspirational, your work. Um, yeah, I mean, there, there have been some, some real success stories. Um, uh, a few that come to mind are, um, well, I know there, there was one student who basically used the song that she wrote for class to, um, uh, to come out as transgendered to her parents because she couldn't find a way to like have that conversation, but he kind of made a song about how she felt and said, here, listen to this, and then we'll talk. And I thought that was a great way to do that. And it made her feel more confident um, in her decision. And then, um, you know, there was another another kid who, um was really he's in an a, a abusive situation and again he didn't quite know how to communicate the feelings that he had um but he he wrote a song to his little brother about how their dad couldn't hurt them anymore Beautiful. and it was it was so good you know and he had a like he had a real struggle singing it in the studio but um you know we talked him through it and, you know, and the, it was kind of a transformative experience. And then to have his, his mom come back a couple of weeks later and she's like, I, like, I don't know what happened at that studio, but he hasn't been this happy in years. Oh, that's amazing. That's he amazing. Broke, he broke through some barrier and she's like, I think that the songwriting thing is what did it. That's amazing. Um, yeah. So, so in that, a sense, that's just an illustration of how music can create change, whether it's mm -hmm. in a person's life or whether it's in a country or a community. That music has the power to inspire, to motivate, to release emotion, to create emotion, create connection that's needed, break ice if it's needed. That music yeah. can just create almighty change. That's amazing. That really is amazing. Yeah, I'm 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 continually, I'm continually surprised by all the cool things it can do. Yeah, I mean, it's a language that, you know, goes across all barriers beyond language. It's amazing. And I mean, I would say every person in the world at some point in their life has heard music, whether it be in a commercial, a film, a concert. It's just one of these art forms. It's, you know, it's part of life. It's part mm -hmm. of life. Well, Tim, it's been great having you on and I'm really interested to hear more about your work at a later date because I think you've many more stories to tell. I just get the sense there's lots of stories. Oh, yeah. Yeah, a ton load of stories. A pleasure to have you on, Tim. Thanks. Thanks. A lot of fun. To learn more about Tim's own music and his non-profit organization, you can find his links in the podcast description below.